Today's episode was first broadcast in December of 2018. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Um, my guest for the hour, USU business professor Scott Hammond, says, My experience with cultural difference began in the 1960s when my father came home from his university job and said, We're moving to Bandung, Indonesia. Since then, I've traveled to more than 50 countries, lived in a half a dozen, helped teach thousands of business people how to make a difference uh, work to your advantage. And uh, Scott Hammond says that when we encounter conflict with another cultural, uh, culture, sometimes we confuse, frustrated, offended, or even angry. And uh, there's a new book out. Scott Hammond is the co-author. It's called The Peach and the Coconut, and he says it presents a better way to address cultural uh, challenges. Scott Hammond, pleasure to welcome you back to Access Utah. Thank you so much, Tom. So uh, for people who uh, don't remember you from a couple previous appearances, um, and you're one of our favorite guests, um, <laughs> Lessons of the Lost yes, is, yeah. uh, is a previous book um, where you talk about your experiences in search and rescue, yes, canine search and rescue, and also people who are emotionally lost or in other ways lost. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I really have a passion for that. And uh, kudos out to all the volunteers who do search and rescue. Yeah, teammates. Remind us how you you <clears throat> sort of stumbled into this. Yeah, how you got into search and rescue. Yeah, I was lost. Uh, I got a dog and thought I would uh, help use it to do search and rescue and. Over the years, it's sort of led, uh, one thing's led to another, and now uh, probably do about 40 or 50 missions a year uh, down in Utah County uh, with the Utah County Search and Rescue Team. And there's uh, just a lot of things that happen in the mountains for people that uh, need need fixing. And yeah. most of them, a lot of them make the news, and a lot of them are high profile, and most of them are pretty low profile, you know. Mm -hmm. Just take some water up to somebody and walk them down. Yeah. Uh, a wonderful service, and uh, Utah County is where you operate, yes. right? So one of the busier areas for yeah, search and rescue. Yeah, high population, yeah. high mountains. Uh, Cache County has an outstanding team. Uh, there are a lot of really good teams that are sponsored by the Sheriff's Department around Utah. Yeah. Then we had you on with, uh, was it uh, Nancy Green? Yes. Did, yeah, did a we film did a, on Search and Rescue? We did a documentary uh, last year on KUED called Search and Rescue that really gives a wonderful profile of some of the people on the teams, that uh, how they come in and why they get uh, in, and also looks at how people get lost and uh, what kind of problems they create for themselves sometimes. Yeah. So just briefly before we leave this, um, remind us what there's a, there's a, wide variety of reasons why people get involved in search and rescue. Like for you, it was a, it was a dog, right? Yeah. Yeah. This sort of dog led me into it and it was a canine entry. But it, one thing that's amazing to me is there's a percentage, not a, not 50%, maybe 10 or 15% of the people that are on search and rescue are people who've been rescued themselves. Mm. Uh, but a lot of them have an interest. Uh, mountain climbing, you mentioned on the nose, the book on the nose. Uh, you know, people like that that uh, sort of say, well, I've seen a lot of people uh, hanging from cliffs who couldn't get off. And uh, let's and I want to help them, and uh, that happens a fair amount actually. Yeah, um, people from all walks of life, I imagine. Yes, uh, including I believe in the film, uh, State Senator John Valentine. Yes, yeah. so, you know, John Valentine, who's fellow, yeah, yeah, a state tax commissioner. He's mm -hmm. on our team, uh, and uh, a lot of university professors because they have flexible schedules um, or more flexible schedules. Uh, doctors, we have three doctors on our team. Uh, so they're just a lot of different kind of people, mm -hmm. and and some just basic, uh, you know, blue collar, um, really good, solid, smart, but uh, doing a, a hands-on kind of a job people too. And you're you're making a real difference. I guess that's the one a big attraction. Here. Oh, that's the thing that I love about yeah. it. I, it just is so compelling. And whether you're sitting in the parking lot, way. Um, trying to help park vehicles or you're up on the mountain tying a knot and setting an anchor and doing those kind of things is you really feel like you've done something significant when you get home that day. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I love that work. Uh, and your dog. Do you, by the way, does your dog, <laughs> before the before the program, we're, we're making plans to do a whole dog program. Let's do that. So, yeah, yeah. Um, your, your, your dog has a sense of satisfaction? Oh, you know, that's the thing know, about dogs that when they, they, they make a find and they do something is they just – they start to prance. Uh, you know, they know that they, uh, we had a find earlier this summer, and 
and my dog is just dancing almost. He's 10 years old. He's a little bit slow. He'd been working all day, and suddenly he finds new life. They just know that it fills their their need to serve, and uh, and so they just know when they're the hero. Yeah. And uh, my dog is so much better than I am. <laughs> if he had a better handler, he would be a super uh, hero, I think. Uh, he, they're just amazing. Uh, well, I can't resist asking one dog question. We'll save the rest for uh, the dog show that we'll, we'll do. Um, I heard, uh, I think it was just yesterday, promotional announcement, I can't remember, but, but this uh, person was saying, we do our dogs such disservice. They're such a social animal, and we leave them for the entire day. And, you know, I guess the implication, little wonder that they are sometimes misbehave. I wonder what you tell you. Dogs oh, yeah. are very social animals. And, they are. And how, how best to, because we have to leave them. Can't bring them to work usually, you know. Uh, yeah, though more and more you can. I okay. mean, I, more and more you you see dogs in the workplace. I was at a corporation a few uh, weeks ago, and they there are three or four dogs around, and they are not service animals, by mm-hmm. the way. They're just yeah, you can bring your dog to work at our tech company. You really, know? really, yeah. Okay. So you see more of that these days, but. Yeah, there isn't much you can do about it, but when you're not at work, there's a lot you can do with your dog. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, we'll leave that for the show. Let's yeah. get to let's get to uh, um, the peach and the coconut. So uh, you you I didn't I didn't know this about you. I didn't know you'd lived in 50 different countries. Uh, um, so you're, how old are you when your dad comes home well, and says we're going to Indonesia? I'm I'm five, and we're living on Logan Avenue in Salt Lake City, which is probably the most uh, I'm going to just use the term white bread place in the world. You know, it just, uh, there's a milkman that goes down the street every day and you can ride on the truck and, you know, all the neighbors look the same and they all go to the same church and we all go to, you know, it just, it was just the most common American street. And then suddenly we're in Bandung, Indonesia, where we have servants. The servants take me to mosque. They take me to market. Um, they're snakes, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're no milkmen. Uh, they're vendors that come to the door every day. Um, it's just this completely dynamic, uh, unusual environment. And we lived there for two years. And at that point, I didn't know it at the time, but at that point I sort of discovered that you've got to learn how to work with people who are different. They speak a different language. They have different values. And I just, I'll never forget sitting in the... Uh, in the mosque, the, the servants used to occasionally take me to mosque to worship, and I think they were trying to show off that they were had an American child to care for, and uh, and feeling like, hey, this isn't all that different from Sunday school. Mm. So you were able to see some similarities, right? Yeah. Uh, and I guess an advantage, maybe, because oh, yeah. you were five or six years old? Well, a need. You know, it creates a driving need to mm-hmm. try to figure that problem out. And on the way over, we went, uh, you know, this was back when jet service wasn't really, uh, didn't go all the way around the world. So we took a jet to Hawaii, but then we had to take a plane to Japan and Singapore. We went around that way. And then on the way home when I was seven, we came around uh, through India and Iran and and Egypt, my parents had this line that uh, uh, this is the only time we're ever going to get a chance to see it. So we might see the, you know, we've got to see everything. And uh, my goodness, uh, how many times have I been back to these places now? Mm-hmm. You know? By the way, what was your dad doing there? What? Well, he worked for the USAID at the time, and then okay. he finished his career with the United Nations, and he saw the world more than I did yeah, uh, okay. because of that. Yeah. But he he thought that was going to be his only chance. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Did your parents have concerns? I imagine they must have some concerns uprooting the family and uh, taking their five-year-old, I don't know, your siblings. And, yeah. You know. Well, you know, we always say that our parents gave us the world, and my parents are both still alive uh, my dad's 94 years old, and they really did give us the world. It, they just that that one trip gave them uh, w- curiosity about people, and I think it made my dad's career in a lot of ways because his teams were often multicultural. Well, they were always multicultural. He worked at UNESCO, he worked at the International Atomic Energy Agency, and he would have to bring together these people who were dramatically different and from dramatically different backgrounds and get productivity out of them and get them to perform in the workplace and and he did it well hmm. uh so so tell me uh, and maybe select a story from your repertoire of uh these differences can pose problems oh yeah yeah absolutely um and you know we we try to figure it out i mean the first thing we look at is is this idea of truing how do you make something true you know um 
and people from our culture, Tom, and I'm going to just assume that we're both from an American culture, a northern, uh, a North American culture, where we uh, we sort of have this basic idea that uh, uh, there's a truth out there, a universal truth out there, and it's real. Um, there's another group of people who are out there, uh, and they are uh, they they ha- are more particularists. That is, that their relationships are or determine what is true, and so they're not that concerned about the universal truth that is uh, uh, comes maybe from religion or the rule of law. They're more concerned with what does my boss think or what does my leader think is true, and so those are. That's the first way that we sort of see differences showing up in the workplace. Mm. And, and the, by the way, the, that's the peach and the coconut difference, yeah. too, is that a peach is someone who has um, – a peach culture is somebody who's more rules-oriented, uh, easy to get through. You know, the, the surface is easy. At the core, there's a pit, right? Mm. And, you know, there are things we don't talk about. Uh, we don't talk about politics. We don't talk about sex. We don't talk – there are things we don't talk about. Coconuts are, have that rough out, outer shell that's hard to penetrate that shell. But if you ever do, you have a friend for life. Mm-hmm. And you can talk about every, everything? Yeah, yeah. You I can talk mean, about religion, politics. No, uh, I'll give you an example. Is, mm-hmm. I mean, I have a very dear friend, uh, a French friend, and he's very much a coconut kind of a culture. Uh, you know, but, but he and I, uh, one of our, our next stop in my childhood was France. And uh, we came back to Logan Avenue for a while, and then we were in France. And uh, um, and this guy uh, on a street uh, across the street from where we live came over to practice English with me. And we are still friends 50 years later, hmm. uh, a dear friend. Um, and he's very much a coconut. And I just remember being in his house when he was a kid, and, and his parents, um, you know, there was just no uh, – if you're in the house – you know everything about what's going on in the house, and you leave the bathroom door open. And uh, that just shocked me, you know. Even in our house, we closed the bathroom door, mm-hmm. you know. But mm-hmm. in that French house, if you are invited into the home, and it took me a year and a half before I was, you are a full member of that household, and you see everything and hear everything. Hmm. Um, uh, it's personal that get into some examples, and you have some case studies in the book. So I, I flipped right to Argentina because I've, <laughs> I've lived in Argentina. Yeah. Um, and uh, some things resonated with me. One thing they would tell me and other North Americans is you're so cold. Uh huh. Because there's we're used to as North Americans uh, much uh, greater personal distance. Yes. I mean, uh, you and I have maybe a f- uh, yard and a half between us right now, and that's. That's okay. If we were to start closing that gap, both of us would probably start to feel yeah. uncomfortable, for oh, example. Yeah. Some cultures, it's very very close. Personal distance, very close. Yeah. For one example. Yeah, and, and uh, emotional that way, too, is that um, my – well, we, you and I have rules about relationships that protect us, that tell us how to behave, Right. Um, but in their culture, in an Argentinian culture, uh, it's more about the actual relationship. They cherish that relationship. So um, they are going to do whatever it takes to, to maintain that relationship. Mm-hmm. You'll notice that, you know, the, the sort of rules-oriented cultures, we have constitutions and Magna Cartas and things like that in our history that define us as individuals. But in those uh, more relationship-oriented cultures, it's done in a much more impromptu way. Let me tell you a story about that. Um, you know, have you been to um, Beijing, uh, China? Okay, I, I, now, those of you who have, uh, the people who have, they'll have, they probably visited the Summer Palace, which is a palace built by the last empress of China outside and my my Chinese history is not going to impress anybody here. But the thing that's amazing about that palace that's on a lake in the middle of this lake that's ornate, that's amazing, that they take all the tourists to, is that it was built by about 10,000 slaves, essentially. Uh, the empress said, well, you know, I want, I want a palace, just like all those European uh, monarchs. I want something like that. Well, if you grew up in an environment that had 5,000 years of oppression like that, who would you trust? Not the empress, not the government, not anyone. You trust the people sitting next to you. And that becomes this really important network in Chinese culture. They call it guanxi. Um, 
but it's it's their social network. We we call it a social network now. We are much more aware of it because of Facebook and other things. But they've been doing this for five thousand years, and they the person sitting next to you, your family members, the people in your village, those are the people you trust, and those are the relationships that you never shatter because they are what keeps you ahead. Hmm. Now, we've just said we shouldn't get into politics, and I don't want to, to dive too deep at, at all. But it occurs to me as you're talking about uh, rules-based uh, versus relationship-based and relation, that relationship with truth and how we arrive at truth, my mind went to our increasingly tribal political culture in the United States. Oh, yeah. And I, I wonder if we're making a shift in this country. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting question. There are certainly shifts going on worldwide, uh, the the Japanese, for example, uh, where I've spent um, some time, are considered to be very much a collectivist culture. But their new generation is is measuring out to be quite a bit more individualist. Um, and the U.S., are we making more of a shift from an individualist culture to a you know, collectivist culture? That's probably a good question. It's hard to measure the U.S. because we actually are very, very different. One of the things that's interesting about the United States is that the states that have a higher level of religiosity, so Utah being included, tend to be much more collectivist than the states like Wyoming, uh, uh, the Michigan, some of the uh, the northern states that are much more um, they're much more individualist. Mm. So wherever you see people practicing uh, religiosity, there tend it tends tends to moderate that individualism. Mm. In some ways. Uh, of course, in the U.S., individualism is venerated, right? Yes. It's, oh, it's, yeah. It's built into our myth. Yes, absolutely, and it's it's a- amazing that way. Um, I, I, you know, we have a, a a resume, right? The resume tells everything about who you are. And since I'm a college professor, I have to have a ten page re- and an older one. I have to have a ten page resume, or I haven't done anything yet. And it lists all of these things, these things that I've done. And the truth of the matter is, is there's not a single thing on that list that somebody didn't help me with, including my dissertation where I had a committee that was wonderfully helpful. And and yet they don't show up on the resume, right? We write it as if that's something I did by myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few years ago, I was hired by a company in, uh, in the East, uh, a research company, a scientific research company, and they had a Japanese uh, scientist that they wanted to hire. They, she was an outstanding world-class scientist. They wanted to hire. They had asked her for her resume. She sent them this resume that was one page long with nothing on it. And 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 they and she couldn't see herself outside her community, and so you know she couldn't write the resume, and yet uh, and so I had to go spend a day with her and teach her how to be an American and brag about all these things that you did as a team, but you know, you're now claiming credit for, so she could write a resume and get hired into this company. Mm-hmm. Uh, it must have been quite wrenching for her personally right because it's yeah it's, it's you know a I big mean, cultural shift because it's it's like my friends in the Uinta basin and the Ute Indian tribe uh, um you know they they see themselves first as a tribal member so if i say to them what are you or who are you if they, if i just say who are you um they will say i'm ute they won't say i'm native american by the way they'll say i'm ute that tribal affiliation is really important if i go to tom williams or scott hammond and say who are you i'll say uh, I'm Dr. Hammond, Ph.D. You know, I, I talk about my individual um, contribution. You'll you'll say I'm the host of, you know, uh, Access Utah. You know, th- these things that are pinnacles of our individual success. And, and so our identities are constructed first around our personal accomplishments while somebody who's in a more of a collectivist culture, their identity is first constructed around their affiliation, who they are affiliated with. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, get into, you, you have, uh, is it seven? Seven, yeah. seven scales yeah. uh, or measurements uh, to determine uh, culture. Uh, and uh, I'm going to ask you, I'll give you the, the break to ponder this, uh, your, your thorniest challenge personally in terms of culture. Okay. The biggest problem, not that the culture, the other culture is a problem, but, but posed the biggest challenge to you. Uh, we have Scott Hammond with us. He is co-author of a new book called The Peach and the Coconut, A Guide to Collaboration for Global Teams. And uh, he says cultural difference has consequences. I think we can all agree on that, uh, the, the basis sometimes for wars even. But he also says that if you turn it around, it can be a big advantage. Uh, we'll talk more about this following this break. I'm Kathy Lynn Jones, and I listen to Utah Public Radio. 
from Mesquite, Nevada, online at upr.org. Acknowledging a loved one is no longer safe at home is an emotional decision. It affects you, the person in need of care, family members, and friends. More than any other event during the caregiving years, a family meeting has the potential to bring loved ones together as a strongly bonded team during caregiving and afterward. Create an agenda to discuss your parents' safety. Consider all the options, review choices, and plan the best course of action. Communicate that all opinions are welcomed and needed. You won't be able to settle everything in one meeting, but you'll get a good start toward a common vision of caregiving needs. A team of support can bring more to their lives in ways you never knew. Support for bringing more to life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members. And Sundance Institute's summer film series returns for its 22nd season. This year's lineup of summer movie nights has new films, old favorites, and a chance for the audience to pick which film will be shown at the August 21st screening. Details at sundance.org slash Utah. Today's episode was first broadcast in December of 2018. Thanks for joining us for Access Utime. Tom Williams. Talk about a new book. It's called The Peach and the Coconut. Scott Hammond, along with Danny Dameron and Christopher Lichty, are the authors. Uh, Scott Hammond, author previously of Lessons of the Lost, and uh, was featured on a uh, documentary called Search and Rescue as well. So we talked earlier in the hour about uh, Scott Hammond's work with his dog in Search and Rescue. Um, and I, I wonder, Scott, just hearkening back to your previous book, uh, Lessons of the Lost, uh, are a lot of this is personal, right, when, mm-hmm. we're, when we're lost. I mean, you talk about being lost physically. That's what you go out and find them as a search and rescue person. Uh, being lost emotionally, too. Is any of that cultural? Is oh, that yeah. Yeah, and how you define lost is culture, uh, cultural in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, I think one of the things that we have in our culture that is, uh, it's not it's not troubling. It's just an incomplete picture is that we always tend to look at difference as being race, gender, and sexual orientation. We might put some other things on that list, too. But they're the obvious differences that we have. And it's the differences that are not obvious that I'm writing about in the book. Or, you know, you and I sit down next to each other, and we look alike, but and we about the same age, and, you know, uh, different things like that. And yet there might be real differences there. And then I sit down next to somebody who physically looks a lot different than me, and there's um, something that's uh, that we have in common. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, uh, what those real differences below the surface are. Mm. And that's why we write about the peach and the coconut. That's, um, I guess, could be troubling on one uh, on one hand, right? Uh, Scott, you're just telling me, okay, now I've got to re- worry about race, gender, sexual orientation. Now I've got to worry about these hidden differences. But it can be hopeful, too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you, you know, you sit down and you start working through these things, and you develop incredible respect, for one thing, for somebody who's different. And and you realize that that difference is a competitive advantage and uh, in that it allows you to see things that you otherwise wouldn't see. It allows you to do things as a team that you otherwise wouldn't do. And uh, you can collaborate. So, you know, the second part of the title of this book is about collaboration on teams uh, in a business setting. But it also really applies to students and all of us because cultural difference is everywhere now. I mean, really everywhere. There are no more Logan Avenues. In you yeah. know, they just aren't. Yeah. Uh, you, you you go to my my grandkids, they're going that first day of school, and they come back, and they've just encountered a lot of difference. Yeah. I wonder, I hope uh, this friend, I'm going to tell a story, I hope this friend doesn't mind, because if he's listening, he'll identify himself immediately, Um, (laughs) because it illustrates your point. Um, So in church work, I uh, worked extensively uh, over, oh, you know, a couple of years, uh, every week with with this gentleman, wonderful uh, fellow, he's African-American. And so that, that's kind of how I saw him. You know, I saw him with the framework of the, our shared uh, religious beliefs. Um, but, you know, he's he's black, right? So, But I began to, to see over time, he saw himself through his, I think he saw himself mostly, or, or the, the, the majority of the way he saw himself was cultural. It was, uh, he was raised in Louisiana. 
saw himself as a as a Cajun guy, right? Yeah. Uh, that's how he saw himself. And so over time, I came to see himself, him that way. You know, I have a, I've had a similar experience. I got a call about four years ago from a guy who said, um, Hi, my name is Bossman Hammond. Uh, his first name's Bossman. I love that name. And his second name, same last name as mine, Bossman Hammond. We're brothers. I, 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 didn't, I don't have a brother. And then I realized, oh, uh, well, you know, you know, there are always surprises in families. It turns out that we are not really brothers uh, from a biological perspective. But um, I've never worked with a man that I have more in common with, including the same last name. But he's from Ghana, West Africa. And uh, and we just have a lot in common. Now he's had a lot. He's had experiences in his life that were very different from mine, and the racial issues are certainly there. But our values, our core values, are very much the same. And uh, he's very much a peach. I'm very much a peach. Uh, you know, and we're sitting there trying to figure out how to manage in a coconut culture. Mm. So <laughs> now, as you made reference to there, um, of course. Race includes cultural elements, right? Oh, yeah. Gender, sure. Um, sexual orientation, there are cultural aspects to those yeah. differences. Uh, one of the things that surprised me about Ghana, by the way, that's um, really interesting is that of all the developing nations out there, they have the lowest tobacco consumption of any developing nation and almost any nation in the world. Now, how in the world do you get... That you know, I, if you go to Asia, almost poor family, uh, you know, hungry children, but dad's always got a cigarette in the corner of his mouth. Um, they just have low tobacco consumption in Ghana. Well, one of the things they are is very much a tribal culture, as you talked about, and and so much so that um, in, if you ever started smoking. You would have to go and talk to mom and dad, aunt and uncle, grandma and grandma. You'd have to talk to five or six, seven ten people in your local tribe, in your in your space, and, and sort of get permission to behave outside the box like that. Well, somebody's not going to give that permission. Somebody's not going to authorize it. If you do do it without asking for permission, you're going to get a lot of pure social pressure to not do it. So they just have really low tobacco consumption rates and other things, too. You know, it's the advantage, again, of that collectivist culture that's tribal that is still village-oriented um, that way. I want to bring up family. Um, it's, you know, we, we think about this uh, sometimes and certainly... Those of us who who are, who are married or have been married have experienced this. You you do have to blend two cultures. Oh yeah. So it's family culture is a real thing. Yeah, and I think it's sometimes easier if you're marrying somebody who really is from a different culture. Uh, my wife and I didn't. We thought we were exactly the same uh, when we got married. We weren't, uh, and there were some differences there. But it's almost easier. Uh, I've got a friend uh, um, who's Latino, and he, he's marrying a, a young woman who's who's from. The Utah white culture, if, you, if if they're for lack of a better term, and so they have to talk about it. You know, well, we do it this way, you do it that way. We do it. This, they have to talk about it. My wife and I didn't have to talk about it, and so it took us a while to figure it out. We looked the same, but we didn't act the same. Mm -hmm. So I asked you before the break, um, what's the thorniest cultural problem or issue that you've you've faced? Live in fifty different countries. Oh, but, uh, yeah. So personally, and then yeah. maybe get into some other stories. I think, I think you know, it's almost always a communication problem. It's almost always a, a, a problem of status, too. Um, let me give you a story. Uh, my friend Hervé, who I've already talked about from France, who came across the street and, and met me, and we're still friends. When we were 12 years old, his mom picked us up from uh, something, and we were driving through this little forested area outside of Paris, and she pauses at the end of the street, and you look down this forested street at this not not huge but small chateau at the end of the street that's immaculate, you know, very French. And then in reverent terms, she says, the person living in that building, if the monarchy were still in place, would be the king of France. Now, when, was, when did they take down the monarchy in France? I mean, it's been a long time. It's been generations. And yet, for her that monarchy was still in place in her mind. And then she said more proudly that uh, Hervé would be a baron because he's the oldest of five sons. He would be a baron if the monarchy were still in place. That lives in her mind and still lives in his mind to some extent. And it helps you see how people in that kind of a culture that is what we call uh, an ascription-oriented culture, a culture where you are ascribed to a title, 
is so much more important than those kind of hidden structures around description are so important for them, whereas you and I, in a university culture particularly, we're just an achievement-oriented culture, right? We don't care very much about what your lineage is. We care about what you can do and what you have on your resume and and uh, those kind of things. And so that's our structure um, is, do, do you, are you a board-certified surgeon? I don't care if you came out of Bangladesh in a little village. I want to know if you're board-certified. And that's the achievement-oriented culture. And in that ascription-oriented culture, that invisible structure, that's where it, a lot of us run into problems because we just don't see that that's so important for them. Hmm. Of course, this is uh, focused on the book, Peach and the Coconuts, focused to, uh, I guess, business, organizations, anyone, but but uh, focused to business. Um, the, and business is increasingly global, right? Oh, yeah. And, and you know, so we're trying... culture comes into it, there could be problems going yeah. back and forth. What we're trying, I mean, there's a lot of really good research that we pulled into this book, uh, years of research on cultural difference, and business is a place where it shows up a lot these days. Um, but we're trying to make it simple. Uh, we Because part of the problem is that it's gotten so complex that people just avoid it. You have to become a cultural anthropologist. You have to put on your pith helmet. You have to, you know, really learn this huge vocabulary to, to understand uh, why that person's culturally different. And what we're trying to do in this book is make it accessible in a few hundred pages so that if you're running a global team, which is so common these days where, you you, you know, you're, you've got four or five or six different nationalities in a, in a team of ten, uh, all these different cultures, that you have to manage. If you're doing that, you can make it work. Similarly, by the way, students have that. You know, more and more, increasingly, there's not just one person from one culture that's different in that team. There are five or six people in that team that are different. We're all different that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, unless managed carefully, that can provide uh, or present problems, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I have had student teams, but also work teams. I've just watched them dissolve over these issues. And part of the issue, the problem is they don't know what's wrong. They just know that that person isn't doing it right, mm -hmm. right? That person is misbehaving is what we typically sort of think. And, and apparently that person is looking back and saying, no, they're the ones misbehaving. And the truth is that they're both functioning in that almost default role. The culture's driving their behavior in almost a default way, and they're not able to reflect back on it. And so the first step, by the way, is to know your own culture and to be able to articulate your own culture and to be able to reflect back on your own culture and say, this is what I need in this team because I like scientific truth. I like achievement. I like, you know, you can sort of name and articulate that for people so they can navigate with you. So knowing your own culture, that's going to take some work because this is uh, subconscious, it's yeah. unconscious for most yeah. of us. Right? It begins with introspection. You're yeah. absolutely right, Tom. It just, it begins with that ability to say, this is who I am. Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, let's take another break, and then we come back. I'll uh, have you go through uh, the, the step, at least as many steps as we can get. There's seven of them yeah. in the book. Uh, and uh, tell me some stories associated with those. Uh, the book is The Peach and the Coconut, A Guide to Collaboration for Global Teams. Scott Hammond is one of the co-authors. He's with us uh, for the hour. Um, we'd love to hear your story, maybe your cultural difference, a culture shock story. Upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and Intermountain Healthcare, a not-for-profit healthcare system with 23 hospitals and 170 medical clinics located throughout the Intermountain West. Intermountain Healthcare also offers managed care under the insurance brand Select Health. Information at IntermountainHealthcare.org. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state. Musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and everything else. Go online to our user-friendly submission page at upr.org. Click on the community calendar link and review the submission guidelines. 
This summer just won't be the same without you, so we're inviting you to join us for live music, great food, and a whole lot of fun on Sunday, July 28th for our summer concert at the Vineyards at Mount Naomi Farms. The evening featuring outdoor musical performances by Ryan Conger Trio and the Blue Blazers Band. Delicious barbecue buffet by Culinary Concepts. Be sure and join us on Sunday, July 28th. Pick up your tickets today online at upr.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action, online at utahhumanities.org. Today's episode was first broadcast in December of 2018. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about a new book. It's called The Peach and the Coconut. We're talking about cultural conflict, cultural differences, hopefully getting from conflict and problems to making cult, uh, cultural differences uh, an advantage for your organization or for yourself. And uh, Scott Hammond is one of the co-authors. He is a professor of management, is it, yes. Scott Hammond, at uh, Utah State University, uh, teaching in the Uintah Basin still? Yes. And uh, so you, you live in Provo area, and you travel out to the U.S. Yes. and uh, to, to teach. And uh, he's in the studio with us right now. Uh, we'd love to hear your uh, culture shock story. Upraccess at gmail dot com. Upraccess at gmail dot com. Scott Hammond has lived in fifty countries. Well, you, I, I visited fifty vivid, countries. Visited lived 50 lived countries. in yeah. a half dozen. Okay, uh, yeah. You you've seen some world, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, and you know it's it's just. Uh, it's God's gift to us, really, in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah, these differences. Um, so, I, my experience, uh, I guess, uh, foreign experiences in Argentina, and um, uh, you know, one thing I, uh, I, one thing they would tell me, and I noticed when I came back to the U.S., Americans, North Americans, U.S. citizens, we tend to take up a lot of space. <laughs> you know, yeah. we walk big. Yeah, we talk big. <laughs> and we need space around. We us. need space around us. Yeah. Um, another uh, cultural difference, and this would be, I guess, uh, North America, some other countries versus uh, some Latin countries, uh, our view of time. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, a meeting starts at 7.30, and if if you're really set as a North American on setting at 7.30, you're going to be disappointed. Oh, yeah. And so we have all know. these ways of labeling it, uh, Hawaiian time, Latin time, African time. I've heard it all. But these are cultures that are uh, what we call polychronic, and that is that they just use time differently and that it's okay in that kind of a culture to do a lot of different things at the same time. But look at how we've uh, boxed in this thing called time management. We taught time management. We're so monochronic, they call it, one thing at a time uh, in our culture that we, you know, that's how you plan your agenda, right? And if it's not on the agenda, we don't talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in a Latin culture or in a Polynesian culture, it doesn't have to be on the agenda to talk about. some That elephant in the room, we can talk about if it's mm -hmm. there. Yeah. And so there's some real advantages sometimes of doing that, dial, having more dialogue and a dialogic approach that's more creative from that uh, polychronic culture versus the agenda-driven, point-by-point, very efficient uh, monochronic view that it's sort of the way that most Americans approach things. And I found that I, I became very comfortable. I, I, I kind of enjoyed that looser yeah. approach personally. Yeah. So that, yeah. and, and, and the truth is we all have both of the all of these mm -hmm. characteristics in us. And and uh, and so it's easier. Uh, it's not 100% true that we all we can always see the other side, but we can see the advantages of the other side, mm -hmm. too, sometimes. So I wonder if you have an example of uh, where, where these cultural differences can pose a problem. Yeah. In, in a business setting or whatever oh, setting you, you know. So I, I'm with a colleague. We're in Samoa, and uh, we're waiting for a plane. Now, we are not at the international airport. We're at the airport that you fly uh, to another island. So um, there's it's a grass field. Uh, now, that's not a problem, right? Um, but, you know, you're sort of it's a grass shack airport. And uh, the guy running it, who's also the control tower guy, you know, he's he's directing the the uh, the, the flights to land. Uh, he's picking up your baggage, and he's not wearing his shirt. And all of his friends are around, and there are chickens on the runway. And you're sitting there going, "Do I want to get on a plane at this? You know, do I want to get on this plane?" And uh, and so 
it lands, the plane lands, uh, the chickens scatter, uh, it pulls up, and out of the cockpit of this little 12-seater uh, plane gets these two uniformed, white uniform. you know, it's the jungle, but the uniform's white, starched, they've got their hat on just right, um, New Zealand Kiwi pilots, and they are absolutely monochronic. We're here on time. This is the flight checklist. This is how we're going to, that's who you want flying the plane. But this guy running the airport could manage the whole of it all. And he was so welcoming and so appreciative and and so um, integrative. And uh, so, yeah, you see the strengths on both sides, but it sometimes scares you. Mm-hmm. So how do you, uh, before we get into these uh, seven uh, seven scales, uh, I want to jump to the the solutions, right? How do you, how do you how do you best bridge those gaps? It, it's a pretty common way. We, we you know our our, our little uh, group that that wrote this book, we call ourselves Culture Three, and the reason we say Culture Three is because the only real way to deal with this, you have to transcend. You have to to it can't be your way, Tom, and it can't be my way. It has to be our way. So the so what you have to do is become aware of yourself. And, and and understand yourself. Then I have to become aware of you a, in a cultural way. And once we've done that, then we have the capacity to become to create our own way of working together on a team, where it's not your way and it's not my way. It's the third way, the the culture three way, the where you can really find that culture and develop a team culture that that works for everybody. Hmm. And that's how families. You mentioned ask about yeah. families. That's how families that are multicultural ultimately end up. It's not her way and his way. It's our way that we've created together. I wonder if you'd, uh, you have an example. That I could, you know, you, you see, take the physical example of the, the metaphor of the book, right? Yeah. Peach and the coconut. If you try to put those together, the peach is going to get squished and the... And the coconut's going to crack. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, a very individualistic culture where easy entry, but you got the hard center, rules-based, uh, truth comes from universal truth yeah. versus the coconut, hard to penetrate, but once you do, you're you're totally accepted. It's relationship-based. Uh, you, you can see there, you know, that would require a lot of work. Oh, yeah, it does. I was in China once, and we were on the, at, a, at this tourist attraction um, called the Yellow Mountains, and these are beautiful fog, uh, foggy kind of peaks. You see them in pictures all the time. It's, this, it's just a, it's Shangri-La-like, and uh, there are these monasteries, and you walk from monastery to monastery on the top of the peaks. So we go up on the cable car. We come down on a cable car, and it's a, one of those, uh, like the kind of cable car you have in Park City where you have little four-person gondolas. And there's a riot. There's literally, it seems to us, like there's this riot going on as we go to get on the cable cars. And you have to stand in line, and people are pushing and shoving to get a ticket to go down. And then when they, and then they have to go get in line to go down, and they're pushing and shoving. And I just thought it was complete chaos. And people were getting their glasses broken, and there wasn't violence and blood, but it was that kind of pushing and shoving. And this guy comes up. I'm trying to wait in line, trying to get to the front of the line, trying to get down the mountain. This guy comes up. He's got a stick, and he's trying to pry pry between me and the other person. And it's just it's that kind of almost violence. And we get in the car. And the guy with the stick is sitting right across from me. He's got a big smile on his face. He's really happy. Um, and then when we get down, we talk a little bit. And when we get down, he wants to take a picture of the foreigner that he met up there. What's the difference on that? It wasn't a riot to them. It was chaos to me. But it was not a riot to them. They really come from a scarcity culture. They come from this idea. They have starvation in their history. They have betrayal of, of political systems in their history. And so in the car, when he's forced to sit face-to-face with me, he develops a relationship. And suddenly I move from the outer shell to the inner shell, from, and, and, and now we're friends. You know? But before, I was just a stranger. And I could be treated differently. Mm-hmm. And that's that coconut culture that, that we don't understand as well. Because we treat, um, you know, we go stand in line next to somebody and we treat them as we would want to be treated. But he looks at me and says, that's a stranger. I need to take care of the people who are close to me. Right. I guess the reverse, um, people I could see would be puzzled by Americans who oh, yeah. outwardly very friendly. Hi to any, everybody, right? Smiling. 
but you got that heart center that uh, you're that, disingenuous. There, 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 there's some some things you won't p- let people in. Right? Yeah, yeah, you're disingenuous because you're so easy to get to know. You're this, but you know, you'll get on the plane and you'll leave, and I'll never hear from you again. Mm-hmm. And you'll never respond to my emails, and you'll never do this, and you'll never do that. If you make it through, a, like I, I've got a Russian friend, I've got a French, friend, I've got so several friends that are. That are not a lot, but because so, they don't make a lot of of outside friends. But but if you get into the inner shell of a coconut person, you are a friend for life. I, I had a, a, a business associate who's uh, Chinese, and um, he um, uh, had a heart attack actually at th- age 38 when we were working together. And uh, being from sort of the culture I'm from, I knew sort of how to get his wife in the hospital and how to take care of some things for him. Um, it was just normal behavior for me. But as soon as I did that kind of help for him, I stepped into his inner circle. And that was 20-something years ago. And every month he calls me, every year I get a Christmas gift uh, because I'm now in his guanchi, in his inner circle. And uh, and he's he treats me like a brother. Hmm. Uh, I know you you told me that you uh, you have a component in every class of this, right? Yes. So cultural differences, uh, bridging that uh, that gap. What do you tell your students how to how to make this a strength? Yeah, um, you know we start with reflecting on yourself. So you mentioned the seven uh, yeah. different things that we have. You know, there, there's time, uh, there's truing. There's how do you build a team. Uh, all of these different things are skills that students these days, anybody in business these days, really need to have. And so when you get in that situation where uh, – so I, I showed up at a meeting 10 minutes late a, a while ago with a colleague, and uh, she had left a note on the door that said, never waste my time again. Uh, if you're lucky, I will meet with you in a few weeks. You know, 10 minutes late for her, she's so focused on being on time. And if you come from a polychronic culture, 10 minutes late is not late. You know, so, you know, the first thing you got to do is to sort of teach some cultural um, tolerance. And then you have to start saying, okay, what's your culture? Learn who you are and why you are the way you are. Then learn who they are and why they are the way they are. And then see if you can work together and in a team, in a micro sort of a way, create a way where you can work together. Mm -hmm. This is a this is a discussion my wife and I have uh, uh, constantly. At least early on, uh, I've moved toward her. Uh, I'm a late person. She's an on time person. I've I've accommodated. <laughs> well, but you're you know, you're, on, you're obviously an on time person because radio <laughs> won't let you do anything else. Yeah, right? when I have to be, when yeah. I have to be, right? But it, left to my own devices, I might have been. Ten minutes late to that meeting, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so it does take work. And it does take it does, and it takes discussion. It takes bringing it to the surface. I yes. think you're saying. Oh, absolutely. And you know, going back to that on time thing, uh, my wife, we have the same conflict in our home, mm-hmm. surprisingly. Um, but but I've uh, the way my wife has bent on that is, and it's taken her a number of years to do this, is to realize that it's not a character flaw to be late. It's not a character flaw. It's just a cultural difference. It's just something that you. You see, it's not a character flaw to be a particularist. It's not an ethical problem. That's actually what we tend to think of is that those Chinese, you know, um, they're just not all that interested in, in the rule of law. Well, of course they're not. They don't have that in their history. That's not a character flaw. That's not an unethical perspective. It's just that they trust the people who build relationships with them. They don't trust the people who create a set of rules for them. Hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the. You call it truing. Yes. Right? How do, how do we find out what is true? And so for the one culture, it's based on relationships, right? So yeah. That's what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, if if you've been in a history, if you've grown up in a culture where um, most, you know, the empress the, could enslave you, you were owned by the empress, uh, you were owned by the party, you were um, abused. The people who protect you are your family. Uh, are your village, are the people who are close and near to you. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, in that world, the thing that's most important is that relationship, not what is universally true, no, not what is the theology of things, not what is, but it's what does Tom think, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm going to go with Tom because I want Tom to be comfortable, and I, want, I don't ever want to break that relationship with Tom. And so there's a reluctance to to sort of engage in uh in, in in what we would call you and I would call a rational uh, intellectual discussion. Mm-hmm. 
it again, I'm I'm feeling echoes of this in our political debates today. I oh think yeah. What what we're I think where we're going is it's not just a political debate. It's if you disagree with me, you have a character problem. Yes. It's ethical. It's wrong values. Yeah. And it's why we just talk past each other so many times in so many ways. And it also makes it, it helps you understand why the United States is so difficult and different to understand. You know, the Southern culture really is different than Western culture, is really different than Eastern culture. A few years ago, I was in Canada, and this guy says, you know, they drew the line the wrong way. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, well, they, sh- they went from, uh, you know, east to west. They should have gone from north to south, and then Western Canada and Western the U.S. would be one country, and we'd be, and we could put all of our Eastern people in with your Eastern people, and everybody'd be happy. Uh, I'm not sure he was right, but there's some truth to that. That we, a lot of people in the Western U.S. are more like Western Canadians than they are Eastern Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, few, you know, a couple decades ago. Uh, Canada almost broke up. Uh, yeah. Meech Lake Accords uh, saved that, I guess, from the perspective of Canadians. No, we actually, yeah. um, some of the early work that we did on the material in this book was with the Campaign for Canadian Unity. Yeah. And uh, and they, that, that was actually a real problem with them. And I just loved the fact that they said, let's embrace this and figure us out. And they've done some very important work on cultural differences in Canada as a nation uh, to, to, to not break up. Yeah. Uh, I think it came within a vote or two. It was it was very close. Yeah. And at that point, the western provinces might have applied for statehood. And you know, but anyway, um, so we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, we'll we'll leave uh, others of the seven uh, skills to, to for, for people to read in the book. Um, so, what's your takeaway? What would, what would you like people to take away from this discussion? You know, mostly um, I'd want people to say, "I'm not afraid of this." I hope the book gives people a sense of confidence that they can go in and sit next to somebody on a plane who's a complete stranger and have that conversation that's different. But what's more important, what's harder, is not that stranger on the plane. It's, like you said, your wife, the person who's closest to you, the team member that you're going to have to work with, that you're charged to work with, that you have to be productive at work with. Those are the people where you need to be able to sit down and say, let's have this conversation about who I am, who you are, and how we can work together. What we tend to do more often than not in business is focus on the business issue at hand, the technical issue we have to solve, and we don't focus on how we work together and should work together. And if you have those conversations, you will have cherished relationships throughout your life. Hmm. I'm thinking of the Stephen Covey quote, uh, with people, fast is slow and slow is fast, right? So slow down, have that conversation. Um, uh, So just uh, 20 seconds, before we went on the air, you mentioned your next project. Yeah, Uh, we're looking at highly reliable teams and how they function. Uh, This goes back a little bit to search and rescue, but emergency medical, surgical teams, teams that cannot fail. And so uh, we've got some good funding from the Center for Growth and Opportunity uh, here on campus, and we're looking at that. Okay. Scott Hammond, he's a co-author of a new book called The Peach and the Coconut, and that is out and available now. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.